You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We started our series a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 5. We looked at the Beatitudes, and then last week we looked at the, the concept of salt and light and what it means for us as believers to be salt and light in our environments. And I told you that I think there's differences in those two things. I don't think that Jesus is trying to use the same uh, truth or trying to, uh, trying to come up with two different analogies for the same truth. I think he's got different perspectives there. We talked about what salt brings to its environment, right? Like it makes the environment better. It makes the food better that we eat. Um, we also talked about the, the preservation aspect of salt, right? Like it, it keeps things from spoiling. And so we talked about as Christians in the environments that we find ourselves in, whether it's in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our families, that we are meant to make those environments better. Um, that when Christians are present in those environments, they should be better environments. Uh, one, because we preserve it from being as evil as it could be, right? Not all of us have the advantage of, of being a part of extended families that are believers. We're not all uh, with the privilege of being able to work in a place where everybody's a believer, right? And so um, we make those environments better by kind of holding back some of the evil that could take place. Uh, but we also provide the light in those environments too, right? And so we talked about how it's not just that we do good deeds or we do good things in our environments and make those things better, we provide clarity for why we do those things, right? The light piece is that we shine into the darkness. We help others understand their sin. We help others understand how they come to Christ through the gospel. And so not only do we, we serve as salt where we make our environments better, but we also provide the clarity that light brings to its environments as well. And so we, we bring people out of darkness into his marvelous Light. And so that brings us now to Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 17. I want to read to you our text today. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whatever relaxes one of the least, or whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Our summary sentence for today. Jesus came to fulfill the law's requirements and will one day fulfill all of God's promises in the Old Testament. But in the meantime, he has called us to obey him both outwardly and inwardly with a heart of love for him and others. Jesus came to fulfill the law's requirements and will one day fulfill all of God's promises in the Old Testament. But in the meantime, he has called us to obey him both outwardly and inwardly with a heart of love for him and others. For our kids, Jesus came to be perfect for us so we can be saved and now calls us to obey him out of love. As Jesus continues through this sermon, we're going to see that he addresses 
the, the, the people, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, but those that have been sitting under their teaching as well, he's addressing their, their concept and understanding of Scripture, particularly what Scripture has to say about their actions and what they're supposed to be doing and not doing. Um, you're going to see this phrase throughout uh, some of the teaching that we see in the coming weeks. You have heard that it was said. Right? He says that in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Notice that he doesn't say it is written or what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. These are phrases that Matthew identifies with Jesus in other parts of his gospel. So uh, in, in the uh, verse two of cha- uh, chapter 2, verse 5, chapter 4, verse 4, uh, it says, it is written. So Jesus is referencing uh, what the Old Testament specifically says, right? Or what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, right? So we, we just came out of the minor prophets. We've seen a lot of what God said through the prophets. But now Jesus is turning his attention more towards what they've heard said about Scripture, right? So this is what your teachers have told you about Scripture. And then he follows it up with, I say to you. So there's, a, there's a corrective piece to You've heard that it was said, but here's what I say to you. Look what it says in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's used nine times in verses 18 through 44. It speaks to Jesus's authority, right? He's saying that that I have the authority to clarify this for you. Think about some of the criticisms that have come Jesus's way by his enemies here in the gospels, things that they accuse Jesus of doing and, and why they ultimately want to see him put on the cross, right? The things that, that, that immediately come to mind, right? He was, he was uh, accused of eating with sinners, right? He was accused of, of keeping bad company, basically, right? He was accused of doing work on the Sabbath day. Uh, all the accusations that came Jesus's way were not violations of God's commands. It weren't violations of God's laws, right? We know that. We know that Jesus was perfect. We know that he lived without sin, but he was in violation of their traditions, of their oral understandings of what uh, it meant to obey God's law. So the Pharisees and scribes had added to what God's word says in order to help the people better understand how to live it out. And so he was violating what they believed was the best way to live out some of God's commands. Jesus doesn't come to abolish anything that's been previously written by God. He doesn't come to relax any of God's commands. Instead, he comes to abolish some of the things that have been written by man, these unrighteous traditions. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Matthew chapter 15, he comes back to this idea of these unhealthy traditions. And in Matthew 15, he actually describes how their traditions weren't helping them keep God's law. They were actually hurting their ability to keep God's law. Look what it says in Matthew 15, verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Notice they don't say, why do you you not do what this specific passage of Scripture says? It's the tradition of the elders. Why do do your disciples not do this? Verse 3, he answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Right, what were they doing there? They were finding ways to relax God's commands, to get around some of God's commands 
right? They were painting it in a way that, that seemed good and seemed right. Here's a way where you don't have to honor your parents. Here's a way where you don't have to take care of your parents, right? Even though God's word had commanded them to do such, they're all caught up in, hey, Jesus, why aren't you following our traditions? Why aren't you following what we think should be done to carry out God's law? He kind of stops and pauses and says, why aren't you guys just keeping God's law, right? Like your traditions are actually resulting in the opposite. You're not keeping God's law. He doesn't come to negate something from the Old Testament, but something from their understanding of it. He wants to overthrow their erroneous traditions and indicate the real direction towards which the Old Testament points. He's establishing his authority and his right to basically dictate, it, dictate to us what our ethics should look like, how we should live our life. And he has that authority, right? He's, he's made this world. He's the creator of this world, and so he gets to dictate to us how to live in it and how not to live in it. But what we see right off the bat in today's text is um, such a, a high view of Scripture that Jesus communicates, right? Um, and, and, I, and I would just kind of pause right here and, and say, it's always a good rule of thumb when a new teacher kind of shows up on the scene to evaluate that teacher first by what he says about God's Word. What type of place, what type of authority does he attribute to God's word? And that'll give you a real good indication as to whether you should listen to anything else that person has to say, right? And I know we've got people that are visiting with us this morning. So let me just, let me just specify for you that we believe that God's word has unbelievable authority here in this church, right? And we wanna believe it and we want to obey it all the way down to the very words, the very letters that the Holy Spirit wrote through men. Right? And we believe that it has no errors and that it has no mistakes and that, that it speaks to our life and, and, it, and, it, and it ultimately points to Jesus, right? And that's what Jesus says about it. He shows up and says, look, I'm not here to change anything. I'm not here to abolish anything. I'm here to fulfill what God has been saying since the beginning of time. I remember when I was at Liberty um, and, I, and I remember it was uh, right before September 11th happened because September 11th stopped, <laughs> some of the ramifications that were coming potentially to me and to Rob at Snowbird because we were in the midst of our spiritual emphasis week at Liberty and we were spiritual leaders on our hallway and the pastoral office had brought in an individual to speak. And I've shared this story with some of you before, brought in a, a, a speaker to, to teach our, our student body that week, right? And Rob and I felt a responsibility as spiritual leaders on our hallway to kind of under-shepherd that, right? We wanted to, to lead our hallway into understanding the spiritual truths that were being presented at Campus Church and Convocation and the like. And so Spiritual Emphasis Week was a big deal for us, and we wanted to be able to take this message that our speaker would bring and be able to reinforce that on our hallway. And so we show up to, to hear this guy speak, and he's selling his book, and we get a copy of the book, and you open it up to the intro, and, and he begins to describe God's Word as, as old and dusty and in need of, of, a, of a refresh, Right? And he says, you know, we need, we need updated revelation because what we have is no longer what we need today. So Rob and I just closed that book up. And we called an emergency hall meeting, right? And we said, hey, don't listen to anything this guy has to say this week, right? Because he is not of God. And he does not follow the same Jesus that we follow, right? And word started to spread to the campus pastor's office. And all of a sudden, Rob and I are sitting down with deans, and, and talking through why we can't support the direction of the pastoral office. And um, there was a moment where we had to stay committed to what we believed was truth, right? And, and it's not okay to come in and say, hey, we don't need this anymore, and this isn't good for us anymore, and we need something better than this. 
because that's completely contrary to what Jesus shows up and says, right? Jesus says, look, I'm not here to abolish anything. I'm here to fulfill this. I mean, he believed scriptures point to him, right? I've, I've come to fulfill them. And we believe that. We believe the Old Testament is all about Jesus. He believes that every detail is important, right? I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. What's he saying there? He's, he's talking about the, the smallest letter in their alphabet being important. He's talking about even the, the very scripts that would separate, like for us, a C from a G, right? That little, that little curly part there that, that differentiates between those two letters. He's saying, man, all the way down to the minute details of what the Holy Spirit has said, it's all important and it's not going to pass away. It will be fulfilled. It needs to be obeyed. It needs to be taught, right? It has authority for our life, according to Jesus. It says, whoever relaxes one of these commandments will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. And he's concerned about the heart and not just the outward action, right? Because as we're going to see today, he addresses the scribes and Pharisees and their so-called righteousness. And he demands a righteousness that exceeds this. And I fully believe that he's not saying, hey, there's, the scribes and Pharisees are doing a pretty good job, but you're going to have to do even better than them. I think what he's wanting to show is that they're not doing a good job at all here. They've completely missed the point of what it looks like to obey, right? They're, they're, they're solely concerned with the outward manifestation, and inside, they're completely wrecked. Jesus has a high view of Scripture here, and he communicates that. It's important for us to... In, in regards to the faulty teachings that come about Scripture. One commentator said, we don't want to go above or below the line of Scripture. So he said, think about Scripture as this, this linear line where it's being taught, the teachings, the truths of Scripture. He says, we don't want to go above that, which would lead into legalism where we're adding to Scripture and adding to these these things that we see in Scripture and adding our own traditions and interpretations and holding people to them as though they are the authority of God. He says, but we also don't want to come underneath the line of Scripture. We don't want to relax anything in Scripture because that would lead into liberalism, right? He says, we want to maintain that line of Scripture as what it says, and we want to follow it and obey it. We don't want to add to it. Jesus says, you've heard that it's been said. You're being taught something in addition to Scripture, but we also don't want to relax it. We don't want to take away from it. He says if we do that, we'll be the least in his kingdom. So let's see exactly what God would have us to, to take away from this text today. Number one, we want to see Jesus as the source of our exceeding righteousness. I mean, the crux of this passage, I think, is found in verse 20, where it says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? If you don't have a gospel understanding, you're not a believer, you're reading this for the very first time, that verse should jump out to you, right? Like it should, it should sound the alarms. The only way that I can enter into the kingdom of heaven is to have a type of righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of these people that are being mentioned here. But we want to see Jesus as being the source of an exceeding righteousness, a different type of righteousness than what the scribes and Pharisees were seeking to obtain. We see this, number one, the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus says that he comes to fulfill it. Not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. I never thought about this before, um, just talking about the, the authority that Jesus places upon God's word. And um, as he's teaching, he's constantly referencing the Old Testament. 
right? Like he builds his message off the Old Testament. He doesn't come preaching something new. He comes expounding upon the old, right? He comes uh, illuminating the Old Testament as a, as a means of, of showing who he is, right? Even when he's with the people on the road to Emmaus, he, he takes the Old Testament and shows how it all points to him, right? But I find it fascinating, this, this commentator was talking about how the critics of the Bible and the stories that they criticize most seem to be the ones that Jesus highlights most frequently in his teachings, right? Think about it. The critics want to denounce Adam and Eve as historical man and woman, right? And yet Jesus uses them as kind of his foundation for understanding why purity and, and uh, a lack of divorce in marriage is so important because of how he created and ordained things between the first man and the first woman. He talks about Noah. He talks about Jonah. These are, these are stories where critics would look at this and say, impossible, can't happen, like miracles don't work that way. And yet Jesus is saying, look, the Old Testament matters. I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to show you how it points to me. And then he chooses to use the stories that would come under the harshest criticism today. Right? It's important for us to see how he views and understands Scripture. He comes to do what the law weakened by the flesh could not offer us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Look what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Right? Paul has just described himself as a Pharisee. Right? He has a type of righteousness Jesus talks about here. But Jesus also says we need something that exceeds that righteousness. Right, And so Paul talks about the fact that, hey, I want to be found basically walking away from this righteousness that I was trying to build up, right? All these rules and regulations that I was trying to keep. He says, I want the righteousness that comes from Christ, the one who came to fulfill it in me. The requirements of the law have been fulfilled in me when I put my faith and trust in his work and not my own. His actions result in a righteousness that upholds the law. He's not, he's not coming with a backup plan or a or an alternate plan. He's not coming to, to change the rules. He's coming to fulfill them. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. 
because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That's what Jesus is saying here to the the people that are listening to this sermon. He says, look, I've come to uphold it. I've not come to abolish it, right? The critics, the scribes and the Pharisees are gonna try to uh, denounce his teaching by saying, hey, he's here and, and, and he's one of these liberal teachers, right? Or he's one of these legalistic teachers, right? They're gonna try to come at it and make his message not be heard. In the same way that Rob and I stood up on our hallway and said, don't listen to this guy. Don't listen to this guy because his message is not of Jesus, right? They were gonna stand up and say, don't listen to Jesus because his message is not of Yahweh, right? Like we gotta get rid of him. We gotta do something with him. Don't listen to him. And so Jesus wants to clarify and says, you absolutely need to listen to me because I'm not here saying anything new, right? I'm here to fulfill the law. I'm not trying to abolish anything. I'm not trying to override anything. My message upholds the law. Number two, the Old Testament remains relevant because of Jesus. Some people would try to say that the Old Testament's not needed for today, that we find everything that we need in the New Testament. I'm going to tell you, I need the Old Testament on a daily basis because as I fight sin and doubt in my life, I need what the Old Testament has to say. I need the faithfulness of God to his people time and time again to speak to my heart when I'm questioning whether he's going to be faithful to me in this moment in time, right? But what we've seen in the minor prophets and why I wanted to bring us to the Sermon on the Mount is because Jesus' call to obedience today is absolutely rooted in the ways that God called his people to obedience in the Old Testament, right? Jesus doesn't show up and say, hey, here's some some new things to do in the New Testament that that aren't found in the Old Testament, right? He's he's, he's here to say, look, here's the, the correct way of understanding what was said in the Old Testament. Here are the things that you should be doing. Here's the call to obedience. I told you, Minor prophets, what are we seeing? We're seeing that we have a responsibility to love others, to serve others, to forgive others, to image God well in the ways that we interact, in the ways that we fight for justice, in the ways that we communicate kindness and mercy and grace, right? These are, these are themes and truths that we see in the New Testament. Jesus' call to obedience here in the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely rooted in what we see in the Old Testament. But then secondly, Jesus' plans for the future are rooted in the ways God promised to restore his people in the Old Testament, right? So much of the Old Testament has been fulfilled, right? Certainly from the law standpoint where Jesus has done everything necessary to make salvation available and possible for us. But there are still these prophecies that are lingering in the Old Testament. Much of it pointed to the first coming of Jesus, the the messianic uh, coming to this earth. But as we saw in the minor prophets, there's still these prophecies that point to the the very end future, right? Things that we see in the book of Revelation when we had our study there. This this longing for full restoration to the earth, this longing for sin to be completely eradicated, this longing for us to be held in the arms of our Savior where we're quieted by his love and our tears cease forever, 
Right? These are things that are, that are presented in the Old Testament to create this longing and this anticipation for. And Jesus says, look, all those things are going to happen. I'm here to fulfill them, and they are all going to come about before the heavens and the earth pass away. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Even the smallest letters and the smallest marks, they find their yes in Jesus. So Jesus comes on the scene. Hey, I'm a new teacher. Let me introduce myself. I love the Old Testament, right? I believe it, and it points to me, and I'm here to fulfill it, right? And he says, let me just tell you, all of it's going to happen. All of it's going to happen. And when you find seasons of doubt where you think, man, where's God? Is he going to carry out his promises? He says, look, count on it happening. It's the most assured thing in creation. It is guaranteed to happen and nothing can stop it, not even the end of the world. He says the world is not going to come to an end. The world is not going to pass away until every single thing happens that's promised in my word. Jesus is the source of our exceeding righteousness. We need him to fulfill the law for us. And for most of us in here, we've realized that and we've put our faith and trust in that. He is our source for exceeding righteousness. In light of that, number two, Jesus goes on to say, don't act like the scribes and Pharisees. Instead, act like God. He says in verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. But look what he says at the end of this chapter. Verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, again, I don't think Jesus is taking the best of the best and saying, hey, don't be like those guys, right? What he's doing is he's taking a group of individuals who would put such an emphasis on the external had put such an emphasis on some of the nitpicky aspects of both God's law and the traditions they had added to it, right? They had neglected the weightier matters, we're going to see. But they had had created a system of obedience that was, was completely absent from love, right? There's no way you can look at the tradition that was mentioned in Matthew 15 about how to get out of honoring your mother and father and say, what a loving thing to do there, right? You you read a commandment, honor your father and your mother. Yeah, you should probably do that. But here's an out clause. Here's a way to get out from that, right? He says, don't act like the scribes and Pharisees who have put such an emphasis on the external. Instead, act like God. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What does it look like for us to, to act contrary from this system that the scribes and Pharisees had set up? Number one, we must adhere both to the letter and the spirit of God's commands. And that entails both outwardly and inwardly. We must adhere both to the letter and the spirit of God's commands, outwardly and inwardly. As we're going to see in the coming weeks, God, or, or Jesus brings up God's commands in the Old Testament, and there is certainly an obligation for us to do it to the letter, right? He, God clearly says, don't murder right? Like, like we, we, we certainly don't do that then. We certainly don't commit adultery. But there's an aspect of the spirit of what that means that's supposed to also be carried out by us, which, which has far more ramifications for simply saying, well, I've never shed anybody's blood, so I'll sit on that one. Check. 
right? Jesus says, no, like understand what I'm, what I'm really intending for you to do through this command. The spirit of the law is to love others with our actions as we carry out these commands. Look what Romans chapter 13 says. And we're speaking in general terms now about all these commands that we're about to see. And but here in a minute, we're going to specifically hone in on this sixth commandment of what it means not to murder. But in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is, this is the, the, the aspect or the spirit or the element that God really wants us to see in the commands that he gives. He wants the outside and the inside to be addressed. Look what Matthew chapter 23 says. Looking at the scribes and the Pharisees and their righteousness and why it doesn't measure up, Jesus says to them and talks to them in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Right? He's, he's addressing their perceived righteousness and, and bringing clarity to what it really is, that it's clean on the outside maybe, but really dirty on the inside. And this is what being a part of the new covenant is, right? When we get saved, God transforms us, gives us new hearts, takes those diamond hearts, those stone hearts that we saw in the minor prophets out of us, gives us a heart of flesh that now wants to submit to him, that now wants to carry out these commands, not to the, to the letter, but to the spirit, right? Uh, the Pharisees and scribes could be maybe described as uh, that student in school that will hear the teacher's instructions and will only do exactly what the teacher said, but not take it like any step for, further, right? Like you might be in the cafeteria and a teacher might say, hey guys, I need y'all to clean your tables. Make sure you get up all the trash off your table, right? And then you, you, you do that and the student's walking away and you're like, hey, like you left a bunch of trash on the floor. Oh, you said just, just to clean the trash off the table, right? That's what I did. Well, yeah, what I meant was clean up your whole area, right? Like I didn't know I had to be so specific with you that you would do the, the, the underneath the table as well, right? Like they were so specific, like, we don't want to do anything beyond what we're asked to do here in some ways. The spirit of the law was to love others, not just keep some specific regulation that they had minimized the law to. Clean on the outside, dirty on the inside. Number two, we must not relax the seriousness of God's commands or neglect the weightier matters. They're squeezing the love right out of the law. Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat 
and swallowing a camel. He doesn't say that the things that they're doing shouldn't be done. He just says you're putting such an emphasis on the smaller things and you're completely missing these weightier things that you should be doing. He says you should be doing the weightier things in addition to the things that you're doing. Right? He doesn't minimize. He doesn't try to retract from the law. He doesn't try to minimize it. He just says, look, open your eyes, wake up and see you are missing the point. And he calls them blind guides, right? They're not good teachers. And that's a point that Jesus makes back in Matthew chapter five, that we are to be individuals who, number three, teach others to obey all of God's commands as we model it for them. We don't relax it. We don't minimize it. We teach others to do the same. We model what it looks like to carry God's commands out. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that we're to make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. John is very specific in, in, in his first John letter about our responsibility to live these things out, but to live them out in love. First John chapter 2. Verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 3, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So we're seeing that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all these commands for us, Right? But then he calls us to live out in obedience to him differently than what they were seeing modeled by the scribes and Pharisees because it was strictly external for them. There was no attachment to the heart. Uh, They were focusing on the wrong things versus the weightier things. They They weren't accurately teaching others how to do this. And so Jesus calls them to a different standard and then specifically gets into number three. The first commandment that he calls them to live out is in relationship to our anger. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What does it mean to not murder? You haven't obeyed it simply by not shedding blood, right? There's uh, a desire here by Jesus to address murderous acts, but then also murderous attitudes. He wants both to be fixed, and he's working to fix both in us. As as we're working out our salvation, he's he's doing the work in us. It's not not enough for God to just say, hey, I've got a group of people that don't kill each other, right? He's wanting to go further with that saying, I've got a group of people who love each other, who serve each other, who forgive each other, who take care of each other. Number one here, we have a responsibility not to act on our sinful emotions, We have a responsibility not to act on our sinful emotions. The letter of the law, we're not to murder, right? So don't murder for sure, right? Like like that's an obvious thing that we are called to not do as believers. But the Pharisees and scribes were only concerned about that part, the part that man can see. Jesus wants us to go further with that, to not even hate our brother, to not be angry with our brother, Right? He says that that individual will be liable for judgment. Back in 1 John again, we see the same attitude, the same teaching from one of Jesus' closest disciples, right? 1 John three fifteen. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is John doing exactly what Jesus said to do, right? He's taking the command of Jesus, he's understanding it in a more full way, and now he's teaching us through his letter to follow this. We go further with it. It's not enough to just not shed blood. We don't even hate our brother. We go even further than that, though, Jesus says. We don't ridicule, mock, or criticize our brother. Don't be angry. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What's Jesus saying here? What's the specific spirit of this law? He's saying don't do anything to damage your neighbor's life. Don't do anything to damage your neighbor's life. Don't murder them. Right? We've talked about before in the Old Testament, in the Minor Prophets, where the Israelites were coming under fire for their violence. We talked about how we may not be violent towards others in the ways that we typically think of violence, right? Like you'll never see a movie rated whatever for violence and it not have some type of killing in it or some type of physical aggression in it, right? But we've talked about from a spiritual standpoint, violence is certainly seen in the slander and the gossip and the ridicule and the words that we use towards each other. We can be very violent in the ways that we attack each other through our conversations, Right? Jesus says, I want you to be the type of people who don't murder. What I mean by that is I want you to be the type of people who don't do anything to damage your neighbors. You're not angry with them. You don't insult them. He goes on to say, number two, we have a responsibility to attack our emotions so we don't attack others. Again, Jesus reminds us of the command not to murder. But he also anticipates you don't get to that point of murdering without steps along the way where you're violently attacking others, right? You're, you're hanging on to anger. You're hanging on to frustration that leads to aggression that ultimately may manifest itself through the act of murder. And he says, instead of being attacking towards others, I want you to be attacking towards yourself. I want you to attack your emotions that would lead to you violating this command. Look what he says in verse uh, 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Again, don't just be the type of person who who doesn't murder. He says, go further. Seek to reconcile with the individual that you would be angry with. Be a peacemaker, right? We saw that in the Beatitudes that we're to be peacemakers. We're to be the ones who initiate peace with those who are at conflict with us. He goes on with another analogy. So the first one was, look, uh, don't go to church if somebody's angry with you or you're angry with them. Use, Use your time that you would be at church to go fix that. Then he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. I think he's making a reference to, or Paul ends up making a reference to this teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he's talking about whether civil suits should happen between believers. What does he say? He says, stay out of the courtrooms, right? Get this worked out. Like this should be a sign to the unbelieving world that this is how you handle conflict. You don't have to go to the court system and get a judge involved. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, look, if you have an accuser, if there's a, there's a rift between you and somebody else, man, you get that thing fixed. Don't let that thing go to court. 
don't let some, some unholy judge make a call on what's happening, particularly between two believers, to bring them to reconciliation. We should be models of reconciliation. We shouldn't need the court system to, to do that for us, right? If the Holy Spirit's inside of me, the Holy Spirit's inside of you, we ought to be able to reconcile together, right? If we're walking out our faith in humility, we ought to be able to reconcile together. He says, be a peacemaker because the longer you wait, the harder it's gonna be. The consequences here, you might get thrown in jail because you refuse to try to compromise with this guy. You may end up having to pay all this money because you refuse to, you refuse to reconcile with this guy. What does Romans 12 verse 18 say? If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Don't go to worship and hold hatred in your heart. Spend the worship time fixing that first. We've seen this. We can't really be good with God if we're not good with each other. Right? God talks about that if if he has forgiven us and we've truly received that forgiveness, we have to be individuals that extend that forgiveness to each other too. Don't damage your neighbor's life. Do things to make your your neighbor's life better. Do things to make your neighbor's life better. So the implication here is we see in Matthew chapter 5 about anger is that we need to watch our heart before it gives way to evil actions. He says, don't murder. Don't, don't be angry. Don't ridicule and, and, and be harsh towards your, your neighbor. Instead, do things to counteract that, right? You be the one that initiates the reconciliation. Watch your heart before it gives way to evil actions. Get right with your brother before trying to worship God and settle your differences now to avoid bigger troubles later. Jesus says your, your righteousness has to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees because the, the scribes and Pharisees were strictly trying to keep the letter of the law. Jesus says, I want you to understand the spirit of the law. I also want you to understand that you're free from the law, right? Because I've come to fulfill it for you. I've met the righteous requirements for you. But now, in response, as a follower of me, I want you to live these things out now in the ways that they were intended to be lived out with an attitude of love, for me, with an attitude of love towards each other. We'll continue to see what Jesus means in the coming weeks as we examine some of these other commands. But I want to give us just a, a moment of opportunity to, uh, to, to ponder and reflect upon this as Tyson's going to come and, and, and lead us in a, a closing song. I want you to think in terms of application with two questions that I want to give you. And you can read the questions and then spend some time praying together. Um, you can keep your eyes open. Um, it doesn't matter to me. I, I just want to give you intentional time here and not just a minute or two because this stuff's important. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll minimize this teaching. Like we wouldn't verbalize it, but if we're not careful, we'll walk out and say, I'm good because I don't shed people's blood. I'm good because I don't murder people. And we won't pause and reflect and, and really ask ourselves, but, but do I? Right? Do I harbor angerness toward, towards others? Do, do, I, do I harbor ill will towards others? Do I, do I do things to attack others in ways that maybe doesn't result in bloodshed? But it certainly doesn't capture the spirit of this law. And that's to, to not harm my neighbor, but to actually live at peace with my neighbor. To, to do things that enhance my neighbor's life, right? To be salt, to be light, as we were commanded in last week's sermon. So our application questions today. Number one, are there any commands of God that you are simply keeping outwardly 
but have no real inward submission towards. Specifically this command, but even anticipation of what's coming in the coming weeks. Are there any commands? Even, even as simple as the command to gather together with other believers, right? Do you do that simply for an external means of, of showing that, hey, you know, I go to church on Sundays. But there's no real inward submission to, I need to be at church with other believers. Because I know that, that if I don't, an unbelieving heart creeps in and sin will, will deceive me and tempt me. Hebrews says, if you're not careful, you don't have people exhorting you regularly, you could fall away from the faith. Right? And that warning is meant to speak to the hearts of true believers so that we don't fall away. Are there, are there commands that you see in Scripture that you're trying to obey, but you're simply doing it from an external means? But inside you know, my heart's not in this. Right? We, we need to pray for God to change that. We need to pray for God to capture our heart so that our actions and our, and our, our outward evidence matches what's going on inwardly. And then number two, in regards to this specific command, regarding murder. Is there anyone you need to reconcile with? And there may not be. There may not be. But I can't read this passage and not have you guys pause for at least a few moments to ask yourself that question. Because Jesus said, I'd rather you not have come today. And I don't know that you'll ever hear me ever tell you, I wish you hadn't come to church today. Right? Because I love having you here. I love you gathering it's an encouragement to me. I spent weeks up here preaching and, and nobody was sitting here, right? And you guys were just right here on this little screen and I couldn't see you when I was preaching, right? I, I love having you here. And it would take something crazy for me to say, I wish you hadn't come this week. But to echo Jesus's words, if you're angry with somebody, if there's somebody that you need to reconcile with and your schedule's so crazy that you can't find time in your schedule to do that, I would have rather you not come today. I would have rather you have used the last hour and a half, two hours, the time that it would have taken you to get ready. I I would have rather you gone and and made that right, is what Jesus says. So I can't tell you that about today because you already came today, right? But what I can tell you is I'd rather you not come next week. If your schedule is so tight this week that you can't reconcile with somebody that you need to reconcile with, I'd rather you not come next week. I'd rather you use that time to go get things right because you can't really come and worship him. You can't sing about the forgiveness that we sang about earlier today if you're not willing to extend it to somebody else. You can't really sing from your heart and praise him and thank him for being enough, for being the righteous requirement met for us. You can't sing about that if you're harboring anger and bitterness towards somebody else. He says, and you got you to stop, pause, leave your offering here, go get that fixed, and then come back. And then come back and worship him. So Tyson's just going to play for a minute. We're just going to give you a, a moment of reflection to ask yourself these two questions. Because you may need to, to do business with God with those two things. Any commands that you need to confess to God, hey, I'm only doing this outwardly. And I want you to change me inwardly. And then to, to reflect and, and, and to ask yourself, is there anybody I need to reconcile with before I come to church next week? God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is made clear through the person of Jesus Christ. These shadows in the Old Testament 
And they become so clear when Jesus comes on the scene. Because he doesn't come to get rid of it. He comes to shine light on it. He comes to fulfill it. God, help us to see that your word matters. The commands of your word matter. They're not for an older generation. They're for us today. And they have the exact same relevance today as they did when they were first written. God, we want to be people who live out your commands. Not to earn salvation. You've already done that for us. God, we want to image you well as you're restoring your creation and making your creation what it was meant to be without sin. We want to be individuals who love each other, forgive each other, live at peace with each other. So God, bring to mind individuals that that that's not true about for us right now. Give us the desire to to pursue reconciliation through your power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.